Welcome to the Deep Practice Podcast, where we will share tips, stories, and strategies that help bring power into your discipleship process. I'm your host, Becky Shabilsky, and joining me today is Father Dave Nuss, my co-host. Hi, Becky. So glad to continue the conversation. Me too. As we wrapped up last time, um, we were hearing about how deep practice uh, was so important for you personally, and then with your leadership, and then out into the larger congregation. And um, I just can't get away from some of those stories. So I wonder if you would be willing to share a little bit more with us today about some of those uh, longer lasting effects, the fruit really that you saw from bringing deep practice into your context. I'm happy to share those stories for sure. The the first time that it really came to me this way was a colleague of mine. (laughs) So we had been one of the ministry leaders here and we had been practicing um, as a group and encouraging and coaching and supporting one another in these in these ways. And I don't even know the topic, <laughs> but I was just, it was one of those moments, probably not my best moment, you know, where I was just unloading. And she looked at me and she smiled kind of wryly and just said, relinquishment. <laughs> It was a it was a biblical moment of thou art the man. Um, <laughs> I can kind of I can picture can who you the person was and and the look on her face. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfectly played <laughs> mm. and powerfully instructive. The word itself has great meaning for us, mm-hmm. and that single word communicated a reality that was a pathway for experiencing freedom and liberation from worry, fear, and anxiety, a pathway familiar to us. And I had some work to do, (laughs) practicing a bit more with that particular issue that was causing some disturbance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because life uh, comes at us, right? Even when we, you know, do this practice of relinquishment or a practice of forgiveness. Uh, let's take forgiveness. You know, I, I, I have my list and I work through and I experience that freedom, but I continue living life where I interact with people who offend me sometimes. And so you're never really done with this. Yes. Um, but, but what we came to experience at the church uh, that I was serving um, when we started incorporating these practices um, was this reality that, you know, some folks had been in church their entire lives. They had heard, uh, you know, great sermons on forgiveness. They'd even wanted to be able to forgive somebody, but they never quite knew how. And so even, and then they would feel guilty, you know, about the fact that they're walking around um, with this unforgiveness uh, that is just so heavy and weighty and and they, they were so stuck but then hearing you should forgive, you should forgive, and they want to and they can't. And just, oh, what a vicious cycle. One of the women in particular um, that I remember sitting with put it this way. She said, you know, it's like I have a lifetime full of these, you know, 
wounds and offenses packed inside of me. And it's going to take me a little while to, you know, unload, you know, that list to work through that list. And um, that that was overwhelming to her. But, you know, as she worked on that, what she came to realize and share with us was that she didn't she didn't have to, uh, you know, keep adding to her list and letting it pile up to that level anymore. And so, yeah, we're never going to be done. Yeah, we're always probably going to have a list. We're going to need to work through people and situations that hurt us and offend us and we have to forgive. Uh, but you don't you don't have to have that overwhelming burden, um, you know, that that just weighs you down. The, the idea of 60 years worth of offenses packed into her heart. I mean, oh, the way that she described it, it was so weighty. Um, and, and as we talked and shared and practiced together, what we came to find was that there was a way we were now equipped with a way to walk in forgiveness in our lives. Um, that, you know, when life happens, when, Something silly, seemingly silly, like that driver cutting you off or, uh-huh. or something, you know, more close to home with a, with a family member um, or a neighbor or a close friend um, that we don't, we don't have to just struggle that we, we are now equipped to know how to release that, not just think I should release that, but we actually know how hmm. to do that. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, ministry leaders as solo pastors, we're really looking for tools, uh, pathways, resources that are very concrete, very practical, um, thoroughly biblical, that we can make available. Make available not as a program, make available as a living reality, as a living reality, where that, where the fruitfulness of following the prescription simply is testified that this has made a difference. And with time, with time, I want to develop different habits Mm -hmm. for how I respond to being afraid. I want to develop different habits, thoroughly Christian habits that I had incompletely developed. Or I might say, looking back on hindsight, I had kind of developed, mostly developed, sort of developed. Mm-hmm. I want to totally develop them so that I'm so I'm so um, most likely, <laughs> so likely to respond in a different way, in a Christic way, in a biblically prescribed way in this moment, right? Less, I think I used the image previously, less of a post-it note needing to be in front of me and more of a reflex of, yeah, this is how I'm going to do it. I mean, so there's no... There's no adulation or congratulations for what I did because I've been practicing something with the hope that I'm going to be more consistent with how I live life. Yeah. So so that reminds me of the story I've heard you share um, about one of your encounters with a family uh, in the hospital with them. Um, oh, yeah. Boy, was that a powerful moment. Just like my colleague. <laughs> redirecting me to, um, to Christ through the, through the tools of relinquishment. I, I, we had just finished the Advent opportunity of practicing relinquishment. And it was, it was sometime after Christmas, shortly thereafter, and really intense situation, an ICU unit, uh, a person who, 
was on the threshold of passing into eternal life. And a daughter was present with some other family, kind of chaotic in the moment. And, and, and I was, I was called and came in and, and we stepped out of the room together. The daughter and I had stepped out of the room together and she just in this busy hallway in this busy place. And she just looked at me and she said, without my having said anything, she just looked at me and she said, yes, Father Dave, I know, relinquishment. Hmm. <laughs> and, and Becky, let me, let, me, let me confess, I wasn't thinking relinquishment myself. In <laughs> but she had been a participant in the opportunity given to members from the church, from the parish, to develop that habit. Hmm. And she just needed that awareness was just it was beautiful to me it was powerful to me absolutely i yeah. mean that that's that's the dream isn't it for for anybody in pastoral ministry that we could equip people in such a way that when a situation arises they know what to do maybe even before we know what to do yes. you know and yes and uh, yes. and because she had been a part of that process and in that practice uh, for those weeks, when the situation arose, uh, and maybe it wasn't instantaneously, but somewhere pretty much in the thick of that, she had that awareness of, oh, that's right, relinquishment. I, I know what to do, and I'm prepared to do it now. When we give ourselves to a particular practice or behavior, we give ourselves to it. We commit to doing it repeatedly. I, I think back to athletics drills that are practiced. Well, some of the drills were monotonous mm -hmm. and were boring. And as a younger uh, uh, underperforming athlete, <laughs> <laughs> why do we have to do these drills? Yeah. And yet the brilliance of the reinforced behavior in a moment of competition became clear, mm -hmm. right? And I executed something well, effortlessly, maybe even with excellence, because I had prepared so well for that moment. And and that that harkens up deep practice. Right. And usually as the spectator in those moments, we just think, oh, that person, you know, is is just super and they're special and they're different than me. But if you get them for an honest interview, <laughs> I mean, every time you hear a similar story, don't you? Yeah. I remember years ago, I had the opportunity to be with um, an Olympic gold medal, five-time medal winner, whose, whose own swimming records were broken by someone by the name of Michael Phelps. Hmm. So I remember being with uh, Josh Davis and... Um, Josh had come to participate in something I had, had invited him to uh, to help with. And the very next morning, no fanfare, no nothing, no nothing at all. <laughs> he was going to simply get up early in the morning to practice in a pool that was undersized. <laughs> it was only available where we were. <laughs> and it got me to believe or to realize that success isn't an accident. Right. You work at it. Yeah. Excellence, you don't get lucky being excellent. It's the fruit of a commitment over time. Mm -hmm. Thoughts about that? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes me think about uh, some other stories about these Olympians, you know, that we, uh, I, I thought of Michael Phelps for sure. I think of Carly Lloyd. Um, I, I mean, for anybody who's a, a soccer fan watching the Women's World Cup from a few years back uh, in the final, she scored this goal, this amazing goal from midfield. And, you know, I mean, it was just like, just crazy. I mean, the crowd went wild. I mean, just so much fanfare about the whole thing. And then, of course, after the fact, in the interview with Sports Illustrated, she said, uh, you know, exactly what you've said. This this moment uh, was not an accident. I trained for that. <laughs> and let me just, you know, she would just say, let me just be honest, you know, those were long days of practice. And I was like, are you kidding me? We're going to practice midfield shots. What? She didn't want to. That, <laughs> yeah, all those things that we really experience. But she went on to just say, you know, my coach situated me and he had me practice and do multiple repetitions um, of a scenario just like this. The thought that I could show up and on the biggest stage, uh, mm. you know, in the mm. biggest game of my mm. life and score the goal in the moment when that arose, uh, it wasn't by chance. It was That's because powerful. I practiced, I trained. I, when you mentioned earlier how, how we can just dismiss these kind of moments as um, superhuman, you know, they're just gifted in a way that I'm not gifted. Well, I mean, there is, there is ability that God grants. So I'm not discounting that at all. And there's a cooperation with that ability, <laughs> mm -hmm. working of that ability, a honing of those skills, a reinforcement that in a moment, I am going to respond in this way when I reinforce that practice and that behavior. You know, and I think of the friends of God, and there are a lot of them. In our, in our, in our Catholic Christian tradition, we're, we're accustomed to using uh, the, the, the term saints, you know, any friend of God is a saint. <laughs> and sometimes there's a temptation to think that the saints themselves were superhuman, that mm -hmm. yeah, they just got more <laughs> of something <laughs> that enabled them to suffer less, endure better, <laughs> pray more wholeheartedly. And yet their own testimony is not having been inoculated from struggle. Right. But their testimony is certain behavior they doubled down on doing <laughs> day after day after day. So when great moment presented itself, they responded as friend of Christ. Right. Yeah. I, it makes me think of, um, you know, a theologian and philosopher, uh, Dallas Willard, who wrote uh, often and spoke often about, you know, there's this difference between trying and training. And uh, there was, you know, this, I don't even know, movement from a number of years ago, several decades, I guess, probably uh, the what would Jesus do movement, you know, you slap mm. on this bracelet, WWJD. And uh, Shazam, right. <laughs> and this idea of in the moment, I can just try. And, and it doesn't work. It yeah. is, you know, they're actually, you must adopt a way of life, a way of training so yeah. that in the moment yeah. you are equipped, just like the woman that you, uh, you know, met with at the hospital yes. in the middle of this critical ICU situation in the moment, because of a, a habit that she had adopted, she was then prepared to know how to go to God. Yes. To encounter the living God in that moment. 
Yes. She, just trying wasn't wasn't what it was about. She had trained in a way that made that practice available to her as as a natural. I mean, just it flowed. I mean, before you even realized that's what was needed, she knew. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, I was a very. I, I didn't have to disclose to her at the time. Gee, I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> But I was seized by uh, grace in the moment Mm -hmm. and really convicted in that moment and just said, thank you, Lord, for letting her testify to that training bearing fruit. She just shared her fruit with me. She knew what she was called to do to lessen that anxiety in the moment. I like that distinction, the the trying training. That's that's new to me. I like that. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, the the conversation reminds me of uh, some of the language that Daniel Coyle used in his book, The Talent Code, uh, where he went around and did his research and discovered these talent hotbeds, as he called them, um, all over the world. These places that routinely turned out, uh, you know, sort of experts in whatever field of study. So whether it was a sport or in music or in teaching um, that there were these certain places that had somehow figured out um, how to routinely create disciples, if you will, yes. uh, in their area. And and it just makes me think, you know, what if the church, what if the Christian church could become a talent hotbed of discipleship? Yes. I mean, isn't that the dream? Yeah, it, it's it's the call of Christ that we do this, <laughs> that we become this, and the tragedy is that we we so often have not been that community of believers where faith, hope, and love is readily on display. I mean, we might we might package things you were mentioning about the WWJD. Um, wristbands and kind of other things. Well, though that isn't training; those are trinkets. Mm-hmm. You know, training is a commitment, and it's a commitment that I'm going to behave in a particular way, so that when a particular moment arises, I'm going to respond in a particular way. And f- for those of us who are followers of Christ and members of His Church, it's always an imitation of Christ. And I wish it was as easy as a pious intention, (laughs) giving enough strength for me to be faithful in the moment. Yeah. But in my own experience, it's not. (laughs) Well, and the Catholic Church has such a rich history of practice-based faith and and worship. And, you know, in the Protestant circles, there's been, uh, you know, a resurgence of this, uh, you know, kind of a popularity again of, oh yeah, we need to get back to practice-based worship. Um, You know, so it's not anything new. I mean, this is ancient. This has been a part of the church uh, forever. Um, But what's so intriguing to me in today's world, uh, where everybody's lives are jam-packed and people are stretched so thin and there's so little white space in their lives, uh, this call to practice uh, to, and as you were just saying, you really, you really have to commit. There, there has to be this intentionality and this pathway. Um, how does that fit in people's lives today? Is a huge question and problem. To me, that's the brilliance of deep practice, and its application to us seeking to live 
as intentional disciples, where this is not a monumental allocation of time. This is developing habits through reinforced commitment, really a daily behavior, so that when we need that Christian reflex, when we need that Christian response in a particularly vulnerable time, when I'm really gripped with fear, how is this going to work out? How can this happen to me? When I'm really gripped with unforgiveness, that was downright cruel and unjust and unfair. When there is a pain of loss that won't go away, that's just devastating, that I respond not naturally, but supernaturally, meaning receiving grace that Christ wishes to give to me in this moment because I have disposed myself to responding in such a way where I'm seeking him and not retreating into myself. Mm. Yeah. Well, how about if we dive into that a little bit more on the next episode? That'll be great. This was wonderful. And thanks to all of our listeners as well, sharing in the conversation that is um, is before us all. In our next episode, Father Dave and I will continue the conversation, taking a deeper look at one of the incredible challenges pastors and leaders face today. Here's the scoop. The average person in our churches experiences the tension of being stretched and pulled in so many opposing directions. Lives are maxed out, and we can notice an often pervasive sense of exhaustion as so many of us try to juggle the various important roles and responsibilities of our lives. All of this means that it is incredibly challenging to get people to engage in spiritual formation or discipleship efforts. We desperately need deep practice methods to make learning spiritual practices possible for people in today's busy world and in today's church. We hope you'll join us then. Subscribe now so you don't miss that next episode. And to find out more about us and the practice tools we referenced in today's episode, head on over to deeppracticepodcast.com to find our show notes. The Deep Practice Podcast is a production of Go and Do Discipleship. We thank you so much for joining us on the show today. See you soon.